And it is our very great privilege once again, and at least for now, for the last time, to open God's Word together and to peek in, to overhear this prayer of Jesus as He prays on behalf of His disciples. It's been, it's been a rare privilege, and I hope you see it that way, that the Holy Spirit has led us in on what Christ prays for us. Amen. And so, Father, as we open Your Word, as we overhear Jesus again, grip our attention. Don't let it just be words. Don't let it just be another sermon. Don't let it just be a, 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 a religious exercise. But speak, O Lord, as Your servants listen. Speak tenderly to our hearts to woo us to You. Speak sternly to us in our sin to bring us repentance. Speak truth, for we are hungry to know. Let us see Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin in verse 20 of John 17 and read to the end of the chapter. We're going to focus on the last three verses, but we want to get the context. So John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus praying says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the reading of God's Word. So as we come to the end of Jesus' great high priestly prayer, we see once more that we are on His mind. He's praying for us here, us here in this room, for all those who have come to believe in Him through His disciples' word, verse 20 says. And so as Jesus prays for us, what's on His mind? What does He want for us as, as His great heart of love reaches out to us here through this prayer? If you were here last week, you'll remember that the first thing He wants for us is indeed a God-centered unity between us. That we would be one just as He and the Father are one. Verse 21 says that, that we would be united in our desires and our passions and love for Christ so that His glory might be evident through us. That's verse 22. The glory that You've given Me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Uh, united together as one so that the world can, can see in us a people united together by Him, living His truth, loving one another, making much of Him in such a way that the truth of this redeeming gospel 
is able to be seen. That's verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you've sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So that's the first thing that Jesus wants for us. A heaven-sent unity so real that the power of the Gospel to change human hearts can be seen. And oh, how we pray for that reality to be manifested here among us and among all God's true people. Amen? But that's not all Jesus prays. Notice how He continues in verse 24. And listen as I read this verse again for the language of desire. Jesus is expressing the desire of His heart for us here. This is what He wants for us as He turns to face the cross. Verse 24, Father, I desire, I want that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So what does Jesus want for us? First thing we see is that Jesus wants us to be with Him so we can experience His glory forever. Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am to see My glory. What does Jesus want? He wants us. He wants us to be with Him in eternity, enjoying His presence forever. Never forget, church, that in the New Testament we are called the bride of Christ. We're the bride of We are those upon whom He has set His love for all eternity. We're the bride for whom Christ gave His life to purchase and redeem us for Himself. We are those who were given to Him by the Father. I mean, look at that. He says, those whom You have given Me. We are that precious treasure entrusted to Him by the Father to save and cherish and love forever as His bride. He loves us. And so just as a husband desires for the presence of his bride when he marries her, so Christ desires and longs for us. In fact, you see that word desire here. It means means desire. It means want. Uh, It means this is the express purpose of my will. I am determined to have this. To have what? to have my people whom I love and purchased with my blood here with me forever. And so there's the first thing that we need to see. Jesus wants us whom He has redeemed and He wants us to be with Him. Now, let that process in your mind just for a second. If you're in Christ as part of His bride, Jesus wants you with Him. He wants you at home with him. If you're his by grace, he wants you. And I say that because I think sometimes uh, we're afraid that at best Jesus has simply decided to tolerate us. You know, like that group of folks who will let you tag along with them, but they don't really want you there. And, and they'd be fine if you didn't come. But Jesus isn't like that. If he has saved you by his grace, he wants you and he simply is never going to let you go. 
Do you remember what he told his disciples just a few chapters earlier, chapter 14, uh, 1, 2, and 3? He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'd go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself and there where I am you may also be. Oh, fearful saint. That's a promise to bank on. That's something to remember and look back on. Second thing we see here, though, the reason He wants you near is so that He can show you His glory. Again, verse 24, Father, I desire that also those whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am. Why? To see My glory that You have given Me because You love Me before the foundation of the world. He wants us to see it. He wants us to see it. And this particular word, see, theoreo, means to, to observe closely, to, to participate by seeing, to, to experience something by seeing it. It's more than just a glance. It's like when you take part of some, in some big event because you were personally there to see it. You didn't just read about it. You didn't just catch a glimpse of it on your news feed. You were there. You saw it happen. And by seeing it, you were a part of what happened. You were swept up in it. And here Jesus says, I want my people whom I love with me so they can see my glory. So they can participate in it and be swept up in it so that it fills them and floods them and satisfies them forever. In fact, the form of the word He uses here means to see and keep on seeing. Uh, to continually get a front row seat for the display of His glory. So what does that mean? What is glory? What is this He wants us to see? Remember from last time, the glory, especially in John, but all through the Bible, the glory is the manifested presence and power and majesty and beauty of God. It's God making Himself known to you for the joy and satisfaction of your soul in Him. Remember, what is the chief end of man? Say it with me. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is enjoying Him forever. Seeing Him and savoring Him, as John Piper says. This is what Jesus came to give us. A real knowledge of God. Knowing Him. Being satisfied in Him. Experiencing Him. Uh, as He continually reveals Himself to us in Christ. Uh, John 1.18, you remember, says, no one's done that <laughs> in and of themselves. right? No one has seen God. No one has ever drawn near to God in, the, in these terms of this intimate, personal, eternal way. But Christ, who is the Son of God, He has come near. He has come to us from that glory and is filled with that glory and has come here to us to make that glory known to us. Right? John 1.14 And the Word, that's Jesus, became flesh and He dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, this is not just theology for your head. This is satisfaction for your soul. Amen. To know and experience 
God, both now in our limited way, with all of our limited capacity, but soon in the fullness of His grace when Christ takes us home for this purpose. <laughs> you know, those, those little glimpses of His glory that we get from time to time. You know what I'm talking about? I am grateful for those. Aren't you? Those times when Christ draws near in some special way, those times when He shows you something of Himself in His Word, maybe as you're reading it, in worship, or in some particular experience of His mercy that He gives you at a particular time of need. Those glimpses are precious. And they're part of that verse 22 glory. He mentions earlier, you know, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. It's already with them. It's already their present position. So these glimpses that we catch now and again are wonderful. They're life-sustaining. But the point of this part of the prayer is, dear Christian, you ain't seen nothing yet. Right? There's a verse 24 glory that is still coming. There is a glory that is coming to us that is being prepared for us in Christ that is beyond anything that you can imagine. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul calls it an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And by the way, in context, one that is experienced in contrast to the sufferings we've had here. Or 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9 says, it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. That's the glory Christ longs to make known to us. That is what He is preparing for us right now. Which brings us to the third thing. Notice how all of this, all of these promises are anchored for us in the Father's love for the Son. Again, verse 24 Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me. And and, and why do I want them to see it? Because you love me before the foundation of the world. And So this promised glory is guaranteed to us because the Father loves the Son. He's doing this for the Son. Again, look at it. I, I just always want you pointed to the Scripture to see it. All of this because you love me before the foundation of the world. So how secure, that's the question to ask, how secure is this promise of glory for those who belong to Christ? It is as secure as the Father's love for the Son. Think of that. right? When did the Father begin to love the Son? I mean, this is before the foundation of the world, which is just another way of saying forever and ever and ever and ever in eternity. That there was indeed never a time when the Father did not love the Son, and so there will also never be a time when the Father will stop loving the Son. And if it's that love the Father has for the Son that anchors your assurance in Christ, guess what? Amen. The Father in love gave the Son a people to save and redeem as His bride. And He did that in eternity. And the Son is determined to have that people for whom the Father, for, for, for whom He died. And He will have them. Listen, every last one of them. If that's true, what are the chances that He will ever stop loving you or go back on His promise to bring you home if you're in Christ? Uh, Christian, don't, don't you see what a secure hope 
anchors your soul as you keep your eyes on Christ. And this is what Jesus wants for you. This is what He is praying for you here. This is what He is determined to give you according to this prayer. So there's the first thing. Jesus wants you to be with Him so you can experience His glory forever and that anchors your assurance. Second, notice also Jesus wants you to know the Father, both now and forever, in a real intimacy. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these, speaking of disciples, they know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. Now the big word there is to know. And specifically to know God. Uh, to know God in a real and personal way. Remember that the knowledge of God is what Jesus defines eternal life as. Back in verse 3. Remember that wonderful verse? This is eternal life. How's it going to end that sentence? Boy, how would Jesus define eternal life? This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so again, we understand that eternal life is not a thing you come to possess. It is a person you come to know. It's knowing God. And and that's the real goal of your salvation. Not just to keep you out of hell, but to bring you to the God of heaven. Right? To liberate your life from sin so you can know and walk with Him. And when we think about it in those ten, how sin pales. Here's my choice. Sin for a season or this glorious God forever and ever. <laughs> Boy, I wish I had that in front of me all the time. And so notice that Jesus begins here in verse 25 as He, as, as he turns toward the end of His prayer. He starts with a title. He says, Righteous Father. Now names, and that is a name for God, names matter in the Bible. Especially names for God. Because it is by giving His name that God shows us who He is. And and here we have a unique name for God found nowhere else in Scripture. Jesus turns and calls Him Righteous Father. Righteous Father. First of all, righteous. Righteous because, well, that's what God is. He's righteous. He is just in all His ways. Psalm 119.137 Righteous are You, O Lord, and all Your rules are right. All All of Your Word is true. Psalm 89, He goes on to say, verse 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of Your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness are before You. Meaning, again, all God's ways are right. Righteousness infuses everything He does. Every decision He makes is right and good. None of them are bad. Every judgment He proclaims is perfectly just. God is righteous. And that thought can comfort us when we realize God will never do wrong. But it can also terrify the soul of the sinner who realizes he himself has indeed done wrong and must soon face this righteous God in judgment. And he can't be bribed. He can't be talked out of it. His righteousness is unchanging. It's a two-edged sword. That's what terrified Martin Luther 
before he was actually converted, before he came to see God's grace. Because all he knew in those early days in the monastery was the righteousness of God was something to be terrified about. That that this was the perfect standard by which every sinner will be judged. And he knew that that meant him. And it terrified him. It terrified him because he knew to the very depths of his soul the grossness and terribleness of his sin. He knew. Romans 1 verse 18, which says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he was afraid. And he was right to be afraid. Because God is indeed a righteous judge before whom we will stand. Psalm 7 11 says God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God does not take sin lightly. He has never taken sin lightly. He does not take your sin lightly. He doesn't simply wink at it. And so we all stand before this holy God. And if you stand before Him without a mediator to take away your sin, you will be doomed. But the Gospel gives us the good news that Christ came for this very purpose. Yes. First uh, Peter 3.18 For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. And so now, God's righteousness for the one who is in Christ, for the one for whom Christ has taken away our sin, stood in our place, took the wrath, drank it completely down. Now, God's righteousness for us, rather than a terror to be feared, has become a source of comfort because Christ has satisfied the righteous demands of God for all those who trust in Him. Right? Second Corinthians 5.21 God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Now His righteousness is our friend, not our enemy because Christ has satisfied all the demands of holy justice. And now we go to a verse like 1 John 1.9 It says if we confess our sins, if that's who we are, we are sin confessors. We're not hiding it anymore. We're saying this is who I am. I'm sorry, Lord. I've, I repent. I come to You. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if Christ has taken away our sin by carrying it to the cross, He has... Therefore, open the way for us to come and know God. No longer as a terrifying judge, but now as a Father who saves. Which brings us back to the other side of this title. Righteous Father. Father. In Christ by faith, the righteous judge has become our righteous Father. John 1.12 To all who received Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of of God. Right? So, so He is still a perfect and just God. All of His ways. He hates and abominates sin. He is ready to bring judgment on every transgression. But He is reconciled to us in Christ and has made us sons and daughters whom He now delights to welcome home. What a contrast. 
And notice how that contrast built on that title plays out here in the rest of verse 25. He who is this God? He's the righteous Father. And then Jesus says, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, these disciples know that you have sent me. Two things. First, the world does not know God. You see, that's its problem. That's its sin. It is blind and ignorant of the righteousness of God. So it doesn't fear His righteousness. It doesn't flee to Christ. That is, by the way, why you cannot go to the world to learn who God is. It can't tell you because it doesn't know Him. Amen. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, the, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God um, in the face of Christ. And so the world cannot lead you to God. Its philosophies cannot reveal Him to you. They can occasionally get something right and reflect something true, but they can't lead you to Him. Its religion doesn't know Him. Oprah has no knowledge of Him. Follow any one of those hoping to know God and you come to a dead end. Literally. right? Proverbs 16.25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it is the way of death. The world doesn't know you, Jesus says, but I know you and these know that you sent me. So Christ alone, Christ alone was sent from the Father to bring us a real knowledge of God, which is salvation. This is the core of the Gospel. There is one man and one man only who was sent down from heaven to bring us to God, the man Christ Jesus. There is one Savior and only one Savior who is God the Son, who knows the Father intimately and personally and can therefore make the Father known to us. And so when Jesus says here, I know you, oh, these are words filled with a depth of intimacy. Uh, meaning, I know and have known you for all eternity. I stand in a state of knowing you that is unchanging. Only Jesus stands in that place. Christ alone knows the Father with perfect intimacy, so it is Christ alone who can make the Father known to us. John 14.6, you know this verse. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Friend, look nowhere else. Christian, look nowhere else. This is where real knowledge of God is found, looking in the face of Christ, finding it in the person of Christ. And, and when the world howls as it does, that when you say Jesus is the only way, that's exclusivistic, that's bigotry, remember that they're speaking out of ignorance. They're blind men trying to convince you there is no sunset. Trying to convince you that in the distance there are no mountains to gasp at. Love them, be kind to them, but don't believe them. Instead, remember what Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty seven. I love this verse. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. And then He says this, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Amen. My hope for eternal life is grounded in the fact that I know who Jesus is. He is the one sent from God to bring me home. Which takes us into the third thing here that Jesus wants for us. And that is that Jesus wants us to know God and to keep on knowing Him in the fullness of His revealed love. Verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
Boy, these verses are packed with stuff. Notice first that in salvation, Jesus brings us into a real knowledge of God with growing intimacy. He says, I made known to them your name. Now, in the Bible, to know the name is to know the person. To know the name speaks of a certain level of intimacy and trust. It means that I've gotten close enough to you relationally to begin to know, to begin to use your name because I really do know you. We see that to a degree in human relationships. I have a friend, and a couple of others in this room have this same friend. Uh, it's Dr. Andy Chambers, who is, here's his exalted title, the Provost and Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs at Missouri Baptist University. I've known Andy for years. We've taken trips together. I love this guy. For many people, especially for students at the college, he is and remains Dr. Andy Chambers, or really just Dr. Chambers. That's how they address him, and really that's how they should address him. But he's my friend. Uh, he's one of those men I wish I was able to spend more time with than we can ever seem to find. And it would be really odd for me to walk into his office and say, Dr. Chambers, Dr. Chambers this, Dr. Chambers, why? Because he's my friend. He's Andy. There's an intimacy there. Christ has brought us into the kind of relationship with God where we get to use His name. Amen. Now, it's not exactly the same. Andy's got an exalted title, but it's not that exalted. God's title is far more exalted. The King, the Lord, the Maker. And so there is still and must be a reverence maintained as I look to God because of His majesty, because of His beauty, because of His holiness. We can never lose that. But we have indeed been brought near we are included in that intimate circle of those who know Him by name. I think because that was on my mind, I noticed something this morning in my quiet time I've just never noticed before. I happened to be in Psalm 91. And this jumped out at me, Psalm 91, 14 and 15. God speaking says, Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect Him because He knows my name. And when He calls me, I will answer Him. And I will be with him in trouble. That's what eternal life is. It is knowing God. Again, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. Knowing God by name. Knowing God in intimacy. This is what a Christian is. Who are we? We are people who know God. Not just in a casual or passing way, but with a growing intimacy. Uh, notice again what Jesus says, verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. Notice, not only has Jesus made God known to us, He continues to make Him known to us. Meaning what? Meaning that for us, knowing God is not a static, one-time experience. It is a growing reality. In other words, Jesus didn't just make God known to you at conversion. Boom, you're done. It's all you need to ever know about God. No, this is a growing reality for the Christian. We're talking about a living experience of growing into the knowledge of God. How big is God? Somebody answer, infinite! So you will never know Him at a glance. It takes a lifetime and more. So Jesus has brought you into a lifetime pursuit of knowing God that will continue into eternity. That's why I like to say knowing God is the soul's greatest adventure. 
Young people, I write this on some of your birthday cards. Knowing God is the soul's greatest adventure because in knowing God there are always more lands to explore. You will never get to the bottom of His depths or to the limit of His heights. There is always more of God to know, more of His love to cherish, more of His glory to be astounded by. That's what Jesus has brought you into. And that's why we in the church encourage each other day by day, come on, friend, there's so much more of Him to know. Come join me. And we turn and we shout to the world through the Gospel, Oh, blind friends, join us. You have no idea what you're missing over here. To know Him. Second, not just knowing Him though, this salvation brings us not only in in the knowledge of God, but it also fills us with the love of God. Look at verse 26. This is astounding. I made known to them Your name. I'll continue to make it known. Why? So that the love with which You love Me may be in them and I in them. The God that we know is the God who is defined by what real love is. Oh, listen, there are depths at the end of this verse that are... I I just don't think we have time to even try to take it in. But again, look what he says. That the love with which you have loved me, Father, may be in them. Again, think about that. This is the Father's very love for the Son that has come now to dwell within us. Try to grasp that. The love with which we love Christ now, the love that binds us to Him and to one another, did not have its start in us. It is not a human-generated thing that we have to keep coming up with to keep ourselves attached to Jesus. It It is a divinely implanted reality that God the Father has put in us, the very seeds of His own love for the Son now dwell in us. And so this eternal, unbreakable love of Father for Son has been planted in our hearts through the miracle of conversion. You need to think about that. Romans 5, verse 5. God's love, God's own love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I mean, that's that's huge. Do you see it? I mean, think of the implications of this. Think what that means in terms of your relationship with Christ. I mean, I know. I know what a weak and pitiful thing my love can be. How how quickly it runs dry. How often it falls short. I mean, if, if, if my salvation depended on my ability to come up with enough love out of my own heart uh, and attach it to Christ in order to keep me attached to Him, man, I would be lost. I mean, on a good day, maybe I'd do okay. Maybe. But on my bad days, under severe temptation and trial and pain and frustration and all this world can pile on, here's what I know about me, I would fall away. So where's my assurance found? Certainly not by looking inside my heart and trying to come up with enough feeling of love uh, to secure me. No, no, it's found by looking outside to the very love the Father has for the Son and knowing that this is what has been poured into my heart. Isn't that what Jesus is praying for here? And I don't think there's a single prayer Jesus is going to pray that's going to fail to come out. Jesus is praying that we would be filled with this very love, the love of Father, that this is what would bind us to Him for all eternity. In fact, look, look a little more closely. And you'll see that there's actually a twofold bond of love at work here. Looking back to verse 23, Jesus says, I, you know, I, want, I want this unity with, within them. 
so the world may know that you sent me and... Here's what I want the world to see, that you loved them, speaking of us, the disciples, you loved them even as you love me. And so the first bond here is that the Father Himself loves us with the very same love with which He loves Christ. The Father loves us with the same power of love with which He loves His Son and has loved Him eternally. And so the love God has for us is built of the same stuff, we could say, as the love He has for the Son. Which means, ain't nothing ever going to break that. If God could stop loving His Son, then maybe He'd stop loving us. But again, will God ever stop loving the Son? There's the first bond. second bond now is verse 26. That the love with which you love me, Jesus says, the very love with which the Father loves the Son, may be in them. May be in our hearts, attaching us now to God in Christ. The same unbreakable power of love that God has for the Son now dwells in us, empowering us indeed to love the Son. Dear one, this is a nuclear-powered love. And that's too pale. This is a love on a divine scale of omnipotence. We are held to the Son by the unbreakable bonds God Himself has placed within us, God's own love within our hearts. That's why, listen to me, that's why if you truly are His, you will never walk away. Why would you? You love Him. You love Him. That's the mark of a Christian. We love Him. You would never leave Him and... He will never leave you. That's what provokes Paul's wonderful question in Romans 8.35. You remember it? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the big question he asks. And here's the big answer. Nobody. Nobody. Verse 38 of that same passage, For I am certain, I'm confident, I'm absolutely sure that neither death nor life, neither angels nor Rulers, neither things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. What he's saying is there is nowhere you can look, no one you can think of, no thing that exists in all the universe that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there, that settles it. Right? And now we can just get on with the business of living for Him. Now we can get on with the business of loving each other in Him. Because look at the last thing. Look at the last four words of this prayer of Jesus. Verse 26. And I in them. We are indwelt by Christ, dear church. He dwells in us individually as believers. He dwells among us as His church. So the reason we can stand firm in Christ... The reason we have hope, no matter what is going on around us in this crazy world, the reason we are secure is because Jesus prayed this prayer and then went to the cross to give His life to secure every bit of this for us. And the same Christ who did all those things now dwells in you. The same Christ who did all those things now lives among us as we continue to trust Him. And He is working in and through us to make sure everything He has prayed for us will indeed be given to us. That's where you jump and shout and say Amen. Are you trusting Christ today? There's the big question, right? 
Will you surrender all to Him now? That's what He calls us to. Let's pray. Our magnificent Father, our loving Lord Jesus Christ, the privilege that has been ours to overhear Your voice pleading before the Father on our behalf. To know that this is indeed what You are praying for every soul here that belongs to Jesus and every soul that will come to know Jesus. This is what You are giving. This is what You are doing. This is what You desire. And Lord, if this is what You desire for me, this is what I want as well. This is what You want for our church. This is what we want. And so Lord, we do indeed say, I surrender all to You. We yield to You. Where there is sin separating us from You because of our foolishness, sweep it away. Grant us a complete repentance. Don't let us hold on to a single little morsel of sin as if it could satisfy us for one minute more, but let us find our full and complete satisfaction in You. Draw us near, Lord Jesus. Let the words of Your promise echo in our ears as we go into this week. And Lord, for the one that does not know You, let him hear You say, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. I will do this work. I will forgive your sins. I will sweep them away because My blood has purchased that. And I will give you new life. Repent and believe the Gospel. Amen.